I'm Austin. And I'm Anna. And And this this is Grits. Grits. Join us in reclaiming what it means to be girls raised in the South. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's get gritty. (laughs) Okay. We're back. Committed. (laughs) As one says, when you are in a committed relationship with your pod and your pod host, your your pod co-host. Well, you know, we promised once a month, and it's it's looking like it's going to be bi-weekly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I'm excited. I'm excited. Thank you for all the feedback from everyone. Uh, I received messages from all across the country that you were excited that, that we were back, uh, and you are expecting lots of griddle merchandise. I need to figure out what the logistics are for ordering a thousand griddle totes, but as soon as I do, <laughs> I will send those your way. Anna's here for the merch. What what type of merch would you want if we... Well, I definitely want canvas totes. Mm. I already have pineapple earrings, but we could get those for everyone. That would be really I cute. I think that's really cute. What about, like, those baby fat jumpsuits? Yeah. Remember those? I <laughs> saw them at TJ Maxx, and they were velvet. Oh, yeah. And yes, we could just put, like, like a, a little... lower tracksuit. Yes. I may have gone mm-hmm. overboard this week because... I bought these cheap headphones from Amazon. They really don't have any flair. So I brought I bought some gold pineapple stickers. So I'm going to put them on my headphones. <laughs> Is that? Yeah, stickers, definitely. Um, we can do that. And some message tees. Message tees. So send us your thoughts. You know, yeah. this is an interactive pod. Please post on social media. We got we have the Insta, the, t- the Twitter. Uh, and our Facebook and just send us messages. Let us know what type of merch you'd want. We are we are open to all the suggestions. All right. So updates. I'll, I guess I'll start. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, really excited to see a few of my friends from Austin. Uh, Lincoln Durham is a local artist from Austin and he and his wife were touring across the country. He's a phenomenal musician uh, and it's always great to see Alyssa as well. And I made the plunge this time. I've seen him in concert probably 10 to 12 times and I finally bought the t-shirt. <laughs> it only took a decade. <laughs> so yeah, but uh, it was really great seeing them. Um, I know them from, I used to work at a bakery. I know hard to believe that your political theatrical organizer was once a, a a sugar mama's bakery hostess but I was and I worked with Alyssa there true true fact it is known for its cupcakes so it won an episode of cupcake wars so I would be working there and a bus would come in of 55 people and I would be running around in my outrageous Austin outfits to try and attract more tips and Alyssa would be there cheering me on so that was just a brief a brief stint I had in in the small business bakery business (laughs) it was fun uh but great seeing lincoln and Alyssa. check them out on i think it's uh at lincoln durham just really great seeing you two so pod shout out to lincoln and Alyssa. i also had a very luxurious gym routine this week please explain so i am in a cohort of the other organizers in the south and we made a promise to each other that we would perform one self-care ritual per week and we would check in on each other so mine was to go to the gym and take a steam well what turned into me going to the gym to take a steam turned into me wearing a clay face mask while i had a hair mask and a luxurious bath uh loofah scrub type thing as i was basically 
giving myself a spa day within the YM, the YW, YMCA, the mm-hmm. YMCA oh, steam room. That sounds nice. People were, people were looking. There was a lot of looking. <laughs> uh, it's probably pretty unusual. Yeah, it was, you know, it's not, the crowd wasn't used to it, but I feel like I'm just bringing, you know, I'm, I'm there to, I'm not dressed to impress, but I'm there to just say, ladies, everyone in this locker room, indulge yourself, treat, treat yourself to one luxurious spa routine with everyone watching. Um, so that was really (laughs) exciting. Uh, third update, I would like to establish now a nug of the week. So last, last week we, or two weeks ago, we talked about the nugs, pugs. So I'm going to have a, my little corner. So now we have the grits of gratitude corner. (laughs) We have a Southern mama corner. Uh, and now we have a nug of the week. Anna, what is your little corner going to be? I'll have to think on it, but it's probably going to have to do with a quote from a book I'm reading. So my quote quote of the week, the quote of the week. Okay. All right. I can respect that. I can respect that. Well, I'm going to have a nug of of the week. So, uh, my nug of the week is uh, happy birthday, belated birthday to Dolly Parton and true story. Uh, I once traveled from Austin to a casino in Oklahoma where you're, Mm -hmm. where Alex is from, Mm -hmm. uh, to see Dolly Parton in concert. And I drove by Mm -hmm. myself, had a few drinks threw a few drinks back the most majestic concert I have ever attended. (laughs) And I realized that Dolly Parton, as weird as she is and outrageous as she is and as Botoxed as she is, has never had a drink. She has never done drugs. And so I saw her perform and I thought, you know what? I want to be that weird, authentic person as well. Like that is who I want to be at my core. And so I quit drinking. I quit drinking for about four to five weeks, you know, went through a little withdrawal, but it it, it was, I, (laughs) I was, I was in it. I was in it for her. I worship at the shrine of Dolly Parton. Yeah. So I gave up drinking and then my friends came in town and slowly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what happens. That's what happens. Admirable. I also would like to take a moment to, I don't want to call it shaming, but for everyone listening on the pod, Anna seems to... I don't know if she's embarrassed of my my nug anecdotes. <laughs> what do you think it is? But she doesn't promote the pod in the way that I promote the pod. So I'll be standing in line in the car wash and say, hey, I've got a podcast. Here's a sticker. Listen to it. It's got some valuable content. Mm-hmm. Anna, on the other hand, skirts around the issue. I'm not blaming you. I'm, I'm just saying. What is it? Tell me. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've never told anyone about it. Maybe coworkers, but they don't really care or listen. Um, <laughs> so. But, uh, yeah, I guess I just don't really, like, I don't know. Self-promotion is, like, awkward to me. And then it's also, like, wow, they're going to, like, hear me you. talk and, like, judge me maybe. I think it's, like, a confidence thing. But it's also, like, I don't really post that much on social media. And I don't really think about it. So, like, I don't think about promoting myself. Like, I'm like, oh, this is such a fun thing. I love spending time with Afton. I love preparing for it. I am glad that you do the promotion and that the all the graphics look great and all the social media is great. But, yeah, I got to work on it. And I, I want to. I want to promote it. And I am proud of it. So. Well, I'm sure all the griddles would say podcasting is a lifestyle. It's mm-hmm. an attitude you mm-hmm. have to have. It's a type of attitude. So, like, yeah. just, you know. I'll do it. I vow to... Who are you going to tell this week? Who's someone random in your life that you are going to tell this week? 
I'm going to hold you to it. Just I mean, my, as my family, my family doesn't really even know. I mean, my mom does. Like your brother and sister don't know about no. the pod? <laughs> no, I mean, I think they, and I don't I even think they know trained. what like a podcast is. Like, I think I might've told them last year, but they don't really know or would never listen. Isn't that weird? Ladies and gentlemen, betrayal is just not another pineapple. It's nothing against you, honestly. It's my own, my own issues. I'll post it. I'll post it. I vow this is my, this is me promising to you that I will post it on social media. Okay, I'm going to hold you to it. Mm -hmm. Just like my podmates held me to being decadent in the steam room. Mm -hmm. Okay, Anna, what are your updates? Okay, so I was in D.C. last week for the Families USA conference. Uh, Thursday and Friday and Saturday morning and then my boyfriend met me there on Saturday and we had a vacation for Saturday Sunday Monday so I was in DC for a bit how did it feel was it humid <laughs> how <laughs> it was, many it was pretty how cold. many times have I made that joke on the pod yeah that it's a little swampy there like um but it actually was it. like a little bit weirder because the government was because Paul Ryan's gone well yeah I missed him <laughs> just kidding um but it was a little weird because of the shutdown. Because oh. they announced, like, right oh. when I got there that it was opening. And then we still couldn't, like, go to any of the museums or anything because they were all closed um, until Tuesday. So it was weird. And all of our Uber drivers were like, no one's here. And our Airbnb was super cheap. And, I mean, it was so ap- ap- kind of apocalyptic. Like a, yeah, it was a little bit of a ghost town, especially wow. with the weather and everything. So I actually like that because, like, I don't really like crowds. So... <laughs> Obviously. It worked out for me, but I was, you know, obviously sad that the government was shut down for so long. Shout um, out to all of our federal worker griddles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you work for the federal government, I'm really sorry. We were working, I was working extra hard to try and, uh, actually, Senator Alexander voted to open the government with a clean CR and no mm-hmm. wall money. So yeah. I can't quite say that was due was to me. say, did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> we obviously... You convinced him. <laughs> yeah, that was me. That was that one call I made. It was the, the pod. Oh, wait, we haven't shouted him out. I think I tweeted yeah. him, maybe. I should start tweeting him from the, the Grits. <laughs> He's like, yeah. what is this Grits <laughs> podcast? Yeah, Anyways, okay. I don't okay. know how that would go. Anyway, so I was in the at the conference, and my favorite part of the conference, by far, was hearing Stacey Abrams talk. She is the best speaker, hands down, that I've ever heard in person, like, I want to know her, like how she did it um, or how she learned and like her tips and tricks for public speaking because there were no stumbling over words, no ums, nothing. It was like every sentence flowed into the next sentence, her cadence, her, her inflection, like all of it. It was super engaging. And like most speakers are pretty boring. I have a really, I hyper focus. So like I have the opposite of mm. ADD. Mm. So I usually don't have a problem listening to people, but I can tell when like people are like, you know, zoning out or whatever and no one was zoning out like she was getting so much more applause than everyone like she is honestly so inspiring um and the best speaker um all right and you've been busy with the work requirements we posted the comments the provide comments yeah, the link, the if you look at our last episode's show notes you'll see the link to submit a comment against um work reporting requirements in tennessee and i've also organized a forum this next tuesday February 5th. I think this will come out after that, but at Vanderbilt. So that's really cool. We have a lot of experts coming, but it has been killing me. Like I've been so busy, um, in a really good way. And I'm really happy to be doing the work that I'm doing, but. And not promoting the pod. Yeah. 
That's my excuse. Sure, promote maternal mortality. Sure. <laughs> but no, not the podcast you share with one of your best friends. Of course not. No, it's mm-hmm. nothing I could ask of you. I'm not mm-hmm. bitter at all. <sighs> all right. That, first tense moment on the pod. That, <laughs> is, this, is this our first fight? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Can we make up yet? Mm, is it time? Let me think about it. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about it over drinks after this. Maybe. Um, but with that, we're going to start talking about the topic of this week's podcast. We're a bit preemptive with the uh, conversation that we were going to have, which was about millennial burnout, which my mom thinks is hilarious and not a thing. Fine. <laughs> uh, my mom's also in Paris, by the way, so she couldn't phone in for her uh, mother corner. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> so instead, we actually, when we had had planned an episode beforehand, we had actually written all this out. So we were revisiting it. And it's just crazy how in nine months that it's still incredibly relevant. So... <laughs> So basically, <laughs> so basically on the pod this week, we're, we'll be talking about progressivism in the South and how the divisiveness that we see is not unique to this time in history and to, to, to the narratives that we're seeing on, on both sides. Yeah, so we're going to talk about how um, the South itself it has a very complicated political history. Yes. And um, as particularly when you're talking about political parties and how we feel so entrenched in in the identities and um, and and these type of like tribal ideas of who we are and what you know the other thinks and what we think and people like us think and that's actually changed a lot over time in the South yes. and um, and our political parties obviously have changed a lot over time. So we're going to kind of lay the groundwork of of the history of the South cuz right now it's just seen as, you know, this red uh monolith. Yeah, yeah, ruby red entrenched Donald Trump supporting area and I think one of the reasons we do this podcast is to talk about that in a historical perspective and also talk about how that's not really the tr- the full story. Yeah, what is what the full happened. story? That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. Uh, this is a low-budget podcast, so the audio you're about to hear, uh, sorry. If you can't see us, Anna and I are jamming out. We promise this is relevant. <laughs> okay, here we go. Songs. Oh, oh, that was a, that was a hide. Hold on. No, you go. Mama, gone, gone with the wind. Ain't nobody looking back again. All right, this is the part where I need you to focus in. Focus, Anna. Inside cotton in the ditch. We all picked the cotton, but we never got rich. Daddy was a veteran, a Southern Democrat. They ought to get a rich man to vote like that. All right. So sets us gets us in the mood for a little a little Southern political history. So as Anna and I talked about, the South has a really politically complicated narrative, and and it's necessary to understand the current context of progressive policy in the South and its alignment with party politics. We have always been divided, a little thing I like to call the Civil War. And Anna and I firmly believe that conservatives use policies to limit access and enforce tradition that has outlived its usefulness. And liberal policy, we believe, is about protecting human and civil rights. So a little background about the South. The Civil War era Republicans, they weren't that into civil rights, okay? This was the party of Lincoln, right? But what they were interested in was monopolizing the new black vote, all right? 
and they were more interested in punishing the South for seceding. In any event, by the 1890s, Republicans had begun to distance themselves very far from civil rights. And what happened during 100 years of Jim Crow, it's fair to say that, unfortunately, the Democratic governors and state legislatures in the South were very were, were culpable and responsible for creating and upholding white supremacist policies. By 1948, President Truman desegregated the troops and the good old boys, the Democrats, the Southern Democrats, they threw such a fit about desegregation that they created their own party of the Dixiecrats. And then in the 1960s, two things happened. One is that the racist Democrats were getting really antsy and neither party could afford to ignore civil rights anymore. And I'd just like to take this moment to do a historical side note mm-hmm. uh, and hat tip to Lexi Coburn, who uh, was a fellow organizer and now one of the training directors for Indivisible. She told me this little snippet of black women history that I think is really relevant to this, which is, uh, so big shout out, griddle shout out to Fannie Lou Hammer. Uh, she was a civil rights activist from Mississippi. And in 1964, before the Democratic National Committee Convention, she spoke on behalf of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. What is that, you might ask? Well, she felt like the Democrats weren't doing their job and were being racist. And so she created her own political party. And she, <laughs> President Johnson was terrified of her. You read some of the commentary and things he wrote about her. He was terrified of her. And he should have been because he wasn't doing the right thing. And so in 1964, he would eventually sign the Civil Rights Act. But during the Democratic, the DNC convention, he sent political advisors to persuade her not to make an appeal to the committee. Um, when she refused, President Johnson called an impromptu news conference, and which made it impossible for national television to ignore her. So if you, if you look at the footage, it was the first televised national commentary about what was happening in the South in the 1960s. And so it took people, I mean, it resonated and, and really hit people hard. But Johnson, who needed the support of Southern Democrats to win the election, was beside himself after he did that, after she did that, excuse me. So as you can see, very complicated history. Uh, we have the racist Dixiecrats, who were former Democrats, and then we have a Democratic Party in the South that is slowly embracing civil rights, but not quick enough for black and brown communities in the South. And just another shout out to Fannie Lou Hammer, because... I love a good primary. (laughs) People in the South do not like primaries. As someone who has worked with groups who have endorsed in congressional races, it's like, oh, we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. It's like, I'm sorry. Primaries are good for the democratic process. Well, shout out to Fannie Lou Hammer because she primaried a Democrat uh, in Mississippi. She ended up not winning, but she's famous for this quote, which is, If I'm elected as Congresswoman, things will be different. We are sick and tired of being sick and tired. For so many years, the Negroes have suffered in the state of Mississippi. We are tired of people saying we are satisfied because we are anything but satisfied. So following Kennedy, the Republicans came up with their Southern strategy, all right? So Democrats are slowly embracing the civil rights legacy of Lyndon B. Johnson. And following Kennedy, Republicans decide to dig in a plan to woo white Southern voters to the party for the 1968 presidential election. And you know what their platform was? States rights and no integration. As in the Civil War, the concepts of states rights and tradition were codes for actually maintaining white supremacy. 
And starting with Strawn Thurmond in 1964 and continuing throughout Johnson and Nixon administrations, the Dixiecrats left the Democrats for the Republicans. So those racist Dixiecrats are now the ones creating mainstream Republican policies. And Republicans in the South have had a history of segregating themselves, whether via the ringing cries for succession, <coughs> Texas, but we know that policy can win on its own and we're not bowing down to the white racist Southerners, making them feel heard because we don't need those voters. So I think this is important. Just uh, The historical context is important because, one, we get so entrenched that we don't think that this d- divisiveness has occurred at another time in history. That's absolutely not true. And what we're seeing is that as more progressive people are speak their truth, like Fannie Lou Hammer, the party has to bend to that. Not only the party, but the policies do. And it has changed over time. Um, and so what we need to do is separate politics from the party and policy from the party on what has moved us forward. So Anna, tell us a little bit about why progressives shouldn't court Trump voters. That's a very good question. So a little bit of background on that and, and to continue with what Afton was talking about, she was talking specifically about politics in the party and, and generally about civil rights. Um, but really there's a long history of this when it comes to a lot of different policies. So I read a book by Stephen Prothero called why liberals always win the culture wars, even when they lose elections. So the main idea of that book is that there is a cycle to politics that has existed since Jefferson and there was anti-Catholicism, there was anti-Mormonism, Reconstruction, and and Jim Crow, and Prohibition, gay marriage. There's all these examples throughout history um, that show we have a natural liberalizing arc, which is really great. I mean, the Martin Luther King Jr. quote of, um, you know, there's a natural liberalizing arc to history, which we've all heard that before. But when you actually think about like what we're experiencing now um, and what people experienced in the past, there's a, there's a trend of regressive conservative politics in the wake of progress. So we know that where the people go, the politics will follow. We've seen that um, most recently with gay marriage. Mm. And I think that's something that all in our lifetimes, even me being 24, yeah. I've totally seen that completely change. And yeah, because the governor of Colorado is gay and all of the analyses after the election said that being gay wasn't even he didn't even mention, it, you know, it wasn't mm-hmm. even part of his platform, but he was it was just more accepted. Yeah. And I know the day that gay marriage was legalized, uh, Landon and I, my little brother, ended up meeting at a gay club. But I'll tell the story at another time. Yeah. <laughs> OK. But yeah, so. We know that where people go, the politics will follow. That's super inspiring. And what we're working for with um, trying to make progress and change the country to be more fair and equitable. But there's also this this regressive trend, which is exactly where we're living now. Hello, like after the first black president. So I would definitely recommend this book to anyone who wants to read about this. There is a super interesting thread throughout it that is about the ties to religion and religion as culture and how that affects public sentiments, politicians, and policy. And I didn't know, like, the uh, racial and ethnic arguments around prohibition because a lot of the business owners— Oh, no, what is that? Yeah, a lot of the business owners were Italian and Irish and German immigrants, and they weren't really considered, like, as— good as anglo-saxon people mm. and so it was kind of this way to like take a lot of wealth away from immigrants 
Yeah, it it actually has like a racist history to it, um, which I didn't know about until I read this book and how like people hated like it was like Protestant over Catholic. I just never knew about these divisions in our history, and it's like people are always going to find something. People are always going to find some way to like hate the other, and I mean you can look at Ben Franklin. This wasn't in the book, but, like, he referred to Germans as, like, swarthy and, like, <laughs> talked about how dark-skinned they were and, like, how lower right. class they were. Um, he was also polyamorous. I mean, he was a... He has a he, very he, interesting history. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but, yes, he was also racist. So, or, I, mean, yeah, I don't even no, know what you call it. Bi- bigoted, okay. bigoted, like, yeah. So, there's a history of that. But I wanted to bring that to present day and what that actually means. So... You know, we can talk about all the history. We can talk about these arcs and, like, oh, Democrats are so far away from this. But, like, mm. really, it's, like, such recent history. And we still have a role to play now. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's not doing one more profile of a Trump voter <laughs> in the New York Times. So sorry to call you out. But this idea that that snooty liberal elitism is, like, as bad as, like, dog-whistling racist comments. It's just, like, not where we need to be talking about. We don't need to be apologetic for believing in human and civil rights and fighting for them every day. So So do you feel like that's the conservative response? Is that you're being elitist if you say, I think 300,000 people in Tennessee should have access to health insurance? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's basically why are they getting it and not me, even Mm -hmm. though most people who receive government health insurance are white. But it's the idea of, like, showing respect to people that despise you. That's not going to magically make them make, you know, people who support Trump or have racist views. It's not going to make them support progressive issues. So... There's a lot of research that shows that that Trump voters are united by the belief that they're losing status and also that Democrats and the media lack respect for them. Mm. So it's not to say that elitism doesn't exist. Like, I went to Yale. Like, I literally (laughs) know exactly. (laughs) I know exactly. And I even, like, have, you know, I check myself all the time because— Do people jade roll their faces? (laughs) (laughs) Are there cigar clubs? Yeah, there's a little bit of, of uh, snobbery, um, I will say, in, in any elite institution. Yeah. Um, that's just kind of a foregone conclusion. But I don't think equating that to, like, you know, when Ben Shapiro tweets, this is why you lost the election, like, every other day. It's like, okay, Ben, like, <laughs> go back to your corner. Um, <laughs> but basically, like, it's such a big feeling and so common that it gives it credence right that like that a lot of of people in the south believe that democrats and liberals and media and yada 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 are elite and don't respect them it's not that it's not there but which is which is wild because you look at media outlets in the south and they're covering i mean they are they're almost stepping on themselves to cover both issues to appear mm-hmm, mm-hmm. nonpartisan when really they're giving a platform to white supremacy. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that too bold? No, I think, I think that's a hundred percent true. And it's like, they can't win. Like I feel really bad for anyone in the media because especially yeah, in the yeah. South, because not only are they getting bought by 
all these private equity companies and right. losing all their positions. But then they're put in this situation where they're called liberal rags everywhere. And they're like, I don't read that anymore because it's communist when like, <laughs> actually it's like fairly centrist verging on conserve overly, yeah. overly deferential to, I mean, cause everyone in power here is pretty much openly conservative. So right. it, it's just kind of like, they can't win at all. So it's not like I'm like being trying to be overly critical of them, but uh, it's just interesting that this, that this universal feeling is not just the South. There is this universal feeling that Democrats are, um, you know, have bad motives and are looking down on conservatives. And so we see like the perfect example of this when we were talking about standing or kneeling with, mm, with you know, mm, during the anthem. Yep. And, so that debate really escalated. And the biggest part that I noticed about it is people just kept talking past each other and they weren't even talking about the same thing, like respect for country versus like actual like grievances you have with like, which are two I don't totally know, separate like, arguments. Police I mean, murdering like right. people. And so, um, people of color. And so basically it was like people talking past each other and also ascribing like sinister motives to people, um, who have different perspectives and opinions in them. And it's like that diversity of thought and like opinion and having conversation. Like, I think that's like, you know, a nonpartisan or a bipartisan like ideal that we should mm, have. Mm. And so, it, there's just this message pounded over and over and over again by to like not the vilify, huge to not vilify one another, but to say, okay, there's just this is a spectrum of thought that people have. Let's is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it's like, but there's this whole industry and like political movement and gigantic media apparatus on the right and and party infrastructure and messaging and all that that gets to the core of this exact issue of why people voted for Trump. So they voted by like they hate you and everything that you stand yeah, for. Yeah. And they just that's why these things blow up so big if we talk about um protecting people with pre-existing conditions hello that didn't exist 10 years ago like it is because of obama and everyone agrees and like loves that protection and that is like truly i believe part of like the human and civil rights platform of 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 the democratic party and now everyone likes that and you know so it's not really about progressive policies or anything because they actually win over time but it's about this like just keeping this drumbeat up of the other side hates you and everything that you stand for and I, I mean it's not that there isn't that on both sides because I definitely think that you know a lot of people that grow up in like really cut off like liberal areas yeah. um they can sometimes like they have never met a conservative person. And so that's just really interesting how we've like segregated ourselves into these bubbles. We have it on social media. Sure. But there's people that like, that's how they grow up. They've never met someone who thinks differently than they do. And that's another way that this happens in the first place is division. I think Obama actually like represents this very well because there's this ongoing narrative on both sides that he talked down to people, that he was too intellectual, too cerebral, too cold, all this kind of stuff. And he was elitist and snobby and whatever. But really, he bent over backwards to please people and show as much respect as possible to people that genuinely hated him. That's true. And thought yeah. horrible things about him and Called said him horrible things. Yes. It's, I mean, I remember my ninth grade civics teacher had toilet paper with Obama's face on it because he was elected the first time when I was in ninth grade. 
Yes. I, I mean, like, he also an answer on a test was who was the greatest president of all time? Reagan. So if that gives you any context <laughs> about my high school. Um, but yeah, like, I... It was, it was just such awful hate. And he really, like, did everything he could. And people talk about how he wasn't that great of a politician because he wasn't able to create bipartisan movement. But, like, and everyone climate was change. Trying, Yeah, it was like everyone was against him and also, like, the ACA. So, like, I think history is going to reflect very, very, very yeah. um, kindly onto his legacy. But it's just interesting that he kind of fits into that elitist type of background that a lot of people has created some of or or is used to strengthen the divide that we have now so basically I'm, I'm pulling a lot of this from an article I read and I'll share it in the show notes because I think it's really helpful for anyone to read but like now we're looking at like what's happening in Tennessee what can we do like what are the changes we can make and the answer is like focusing on policy like we have values that we all share we have values and beliefs and you know I've been reading these comments for work requirements and like, I would say like 9.8 out of 10 of them are like, this is a horrible policy. And then like, I'll find one every once in a while that's like, I do support this. I believe that people should lose their coverage. Like, I don't have a single ounce of sympathy for an addict. They made their bed. Now they have to lie in it. Like saying some of the most horrible things I've ever read. And I truly, truly, truly believe that no matter your political party, those thoughts are outliers. I really do. I think that right now we're in a period where like a lot of people are emboldened to say things that I truly don't think that they genuinely mean or would act on. And I, and I, I struggle because a lot of people that I'm close with do fall, have a lot of racist and, and horrific beliefs. And I mean, family, it's really hard to decide, like, do you cut them off? Do you not talk about these issues? Mm -hmm. Do I mean, like, where is the line there? And you have to understand like how people get the beliefs that they do. I mean, we can talk about this forever, but to come back to it, it's like, how do we actually, when you actually talk about issues with people, that's, this is what I found, especially with healthcare, they can't help but be on the progressive side right. of more of, of that is where the respect is. Rights are respect. Like they're a symbol, a symbol of us valuing each other and valuing our country and, and democracy. And so we're thinking strategically about how we can move the South forward, how we can get out of this, of this horrible, toxic, othering us versus them type thing. So Anna's saying basically that in essence, cause I've got to, yeah. I've got to dilute everything you yeah. say. Cause you know, for the, gonna... the common, the common, the common folk, not to other, not to yes. other, not yes. to other, the common griddles, but, but to, to show that, that over the arc of history, the fight for to preserve the ACA, people realized that they wanted to preserve pre-existing conditions, and that was a popular policy, and that will prevail, and it will be it will prevail and mm-hmm. itself, right? And the vehicle for those policies, in my mind, are progressive candidates because they are the ones out in these areas, particularly Southern progressive candidates that are out in these communities touting progressive policies in a way in the vernacular for people. To really have a grasp. I mean, as I told you when I was knocking doors in rural Tennessee, no one knows what the hell Medicaid expansion is. Mm-hmm. But if you say, hey, lower prescription drug prices or, hey, I think your grandmother, your your, your grandmother should live with dignity in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. they People get that. And you're right. And they are popular. 
So Anna mentioned Stacey Abrams earlier and, you know, in the 2018 cycle, we saw a lot of progressive women that, that won over big centrists in Southern primaries uh, with the backing of progressive policy behind them uh, as their battle shield, as they as they headed into these rural communities talking about issues that matter to them. And of course, our beacon of light uh, in honor of Stacey Abrams um, in Georgia, former state house Democratic leader Stacey Abrams made history. She became the first black woman in the nation to clinch a major party's nomination for governor. And what's really striking is that so at the core of Abrams' argument was that identity politics is not something that members of marginalized people can ignore. They just can't. And she said this. She said, if you want equality, you must address the issues and social structures that oppress you. Mm-hmm. And. They, they think they need we need to court Trump supporters. They think we need to court these people. But in reality, what she's saying is that the core of black and brown communities in the South, that is their identity. And like, why would you court people? What am I trying to say? Who are supporting uh, or unaware and oftentimes benefiting and supporting structures that are oppressing right. others. Exactly. Yes. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. That is why we make a good team. And she also ran a campaign that rejected a lot of the traditional methods of what a lot of Southern candidates do, which is edge to the center and appeal to moderates. But instead, she got out in the street. She persuaded new progressive voters, millennials, sporadic voters to get to the polls by simply relying on these traditional methods. So I think what we're seeing is a new South. I think that was evident in Andrew Gillum and Stacey Abrams, this electoral cycle, and I'm just really excited to see what happens. I think mm-hmm. if you can organize the South, then you can organize this country. <laughs> yeah, really. And that and that's the thing is like it's it seems so hopeless. Like our our legislative mm-hmm. um, we have a red elections were yeah. they were really rough this last year. But I think a lot of good foundation was built. Yes. I was very excited about a lot of the candidates that ran across the across in both federal and state elections. And I just really think that there is a movement. And although we didn't see like the numbers in Tennessee that um, we would have wanted we're now like fielding really great candidates. People are talking, people aren't embarrassed to be progressive or stand up for progressive ideals as much as they were in the past. And it's starting to become more common, although there is a while before power is really grabbed. And there's also more than a while, I think before we actually see non-centrist and more progressive candidates running because no one wants to, to rock the boat really. Um, and our legislature is honestly like, I don't know any other word besides pathetic because I saw this guy speak at this legislative breakfast. People were openly laughing at him, but, and, and I joke about it because he was, he was openly, he talked very lovingly about Nathan Bedford Forrest for close to 20 minutes oh, in the middle of, Ugh. um, this Why? and I have never like, I could have spoken Which, more note, eloquently than him in, like, third grade. Okay. Absolutely. Side note, we still have a bust of Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, the founder of the KKK, in the state legislature. Yeah. And we just built this entire, this this massive Tennessee State History Museum, a massive complex, and they won't move the bust. Yeah. 
On principle. Because they, they want to preserve history, but you could preserve history in the Isn't biggest museum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. in the state. Mm-hmm. So, okay. anyway, but this guy, he was just, like, self-imploding in front of this group. And literally, not only one of the dumbest people I've ever heard speak in public, but completely unaware of how wrong, horrible and hateful he was and he was honestly like now that i think about it like the people of color in there were most likely traumatized by what he was saying and i mean i'm not saying that to victimize at all because i know that everyone in there is like an advocate for children and like very strong yeah but like i laugh about it and i was like telling people in the office and i was like but actually that's a person with more power than the people in the room yeah like he actually votes on policy yeah that affects all of us every single day and everyone's children and he is a blatant open openly racist yep. white supremacist man who anyway so that's I, like, i'm actually that's... like very upset about it and like i like i think it's funny I, I thought it was funny at the time. But then when you took a step back. And then when I started thinking about it, I was like, oh, wow, that was actually, like, horrible. Like, I was actually shaking when it was happening because I couldn't believe he was saying some of the things that he was saying. And that's not about, like, trust me, I went to school with a lot of people who are conservative, as in, like, they read conservative political philosophy, they support candidates, like, Mitt Romney <laughs> or like you know who was a governor of a blue state or like Larry Hogan I, I get it I-, I get it I don't agree you know but we could we could talk on the same level playing field about you know okay the climate is changing but <laughs> you know one person would have the conservative policy of wanting to keep as much regulation off of business as possible right and then I would maybe be a little bit more regulation right. but it's you're not talking about is it fundamentally is the climate changing right. or not so you're able to have a conversation about what interventions and what methods and what policies can actually change and, and fix a problem or address a problem um, or make life better for everyone but this is like this is not the conservatives who are in the Tennessee legislature no no, which segues nicely into our gratitude corner, yeah. which is what Anna described is not the anomaly. I mean, we are talking at least half of the legislature that believes and would speak like that. And I'm grateful for I work with a lot of progressive groups across the state, but particularly the rural groups are the ones that I'm most impressed with and I'm most grateful for because they are the ones on the front lines, not only holding these types of elected officials accountable, but also trying to create incremental change that would affect their community in a positive way. And the barriers they face are insurmountable and it's incredibly daunting, but they continue to fight every day. And we had our first rule, a raucous rule call and Anderson, Polk County, uh, uh, Green, and all of these people are bought into this idea, this shared idea that progressive policies work, they're going to work for our community, and we are going to exhaust everything we can to see this change. And I just, I'm very grateful for them. So, Anna, what are you grateful for this week? So, I have been... Um, on a little bit of an RBG kick lately, mm. um, ever since she had her latest um, surgery. So I watched um, On the Basis of Sex in theaters and honestly cried at least four or five different times. Aww. It was so good. It was a biopic about her her early life and her first few big cases that started 
her legacy of um, fighting against gender discrimination, gender and sex discrimination. So then I started reading a book called Notorious RBG. And there have just been, so the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway I had from the movie was about her relationship with her husband, which I think is phenomenal, but also incredibly rare to have someone who, where both careers are valued Mm. and to take turns kind of, um, balancing back and forth but they had a family they were very 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 close they had rules like let's we're at dinner every night at seven um but they had times where like she was a homemaker and had a child while he they were living in Oklahoma then they go to law school together and then he gets cancer in law school so she is like doing work for him but then she transfers law schools because he gets a really good job in New York and then you know she's a professor and he's like trying to make partner but then like when it all comes to these big cases that started to build her career he's then supporting her and like there was a there's this thing about like she hadn't cooked since 1980 because like he just cooks all the time but anyway so I just wanted to share a quote from the book so this is her husband speaking and he said I have been supportive of my wife since the beginning of time and she has been supportive of me it's not sacrifice it's family so basically she accommodated him he accommodated her and it really is like revolutionary to watch this it's not just like rom-com like we're so in love we make each other feel such special things but it's actually like like a practical partnership that was super fulfilling in so many ways, like professionally, personally, with their household, but romantically as well. They were like truly in love. And then it actually helped them become bigger it elevated than their themselves. Profiles, right, it, right. it became the, like he is part of the reason that she's on the Supreme Court. And she is part of the reason that he was like a millionaire too so it's just like interesting to read like how they were both were such big figures but like he would bake her clerks cakes for their birthdays (laughs) like isn't that like it's just like crazy um but they're I mean both like genuinely geniuses but genuinely in love with each other and it's like I feel like sometimes we there's this picture for women that's like you have to choose yourself or like if you you're gonna get lost in a partnership but this is the proof that like she was very shy and she hated out like social functions and stuff. And like the only way for her to become a a judge was to like schmooze people and to advocate for herself. So he would like force her off the wall to go talk to people because he had a big personality. But then he was like, I would never want her job because she works too hard. You know, like he was like, I don't really want that, that like she was a hard worker. So she earned it for herself. Anyway, it just reminded me of like what I strive for in my relationship. And I truly believe, and my mom says this all the time, like, be with someone who makes you a better person. And I 100% believe that Alex makes me a better person. And I like how um, RBG calls Marty her life's partner Mm. because I, like, think it's just, like, that's, like, a good way to put it. But it's the because, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, like, I, it, this isn't, like, some serendipitous thing where you just fell, fell into it and, like, it's just passion. It's and, the horoscope. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, and it's yeah. also not the same as, like, as like okay, well, I'm just going to settle. Like, I want a family. So, like, let's just go and let's coexist together. Like, they truly 100% made each other better people. They were each other's biggest fans. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, like, I just have been taking a lot of wisdom from that. So, I am grateful for RBG and the legacy that she set as like you know and and I really identified in the movie when her daughter was criticizing her for not being out there with Gloria Steinem and like you know in the in these rallies and everything but she was like 
quietly sitting there training a whole like group of young lawyers and then she was up in front of the supreme court arguing that no women aren't worse at math than men (laughs) like these really like fundamental things and this wasn't until the 1970s and 1980s so it's just interesting like she did a lot for women and her to the best use of her talents and so that's right there's two that's what we talked about that's kind of full circle for the episode today which is I'm very loud, as my mom would say, mm-hmm. and gregarious and aggressive and in people's faces about issues and things like that. But you are quietly working and reading policy and helping people understand things, which is just as equally important. It's just two, two different vehicles for yeah. activism. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just drew a lot from that. And I'm really glad that I read that. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. Well. So that's it. This was a very long pod. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Well, if you haven't dropped off yet, um, you can go to bed now. Just kidding. But uh, please like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. We've had some pretty funny Instagram stories this week, so you want to be caught up on that. Uh, What else? Yeah, it's at Grits Podcast, and uh, let's keep it gritty. Yeah. yeah. Keep it keep it gritty. Keep it gritty. Thanks. Keep keep the uh the recommendations or the input flowing. We'd love to hear what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of. Probably less rambling from both of us and <laughs> more pictures of tabbies. So we can we can make sure that happens. Grateful for all of you and we'll see you in two weeks. Maybe a month. But two bye. weeks. Maybe a month. Bye. All right, bye. bye.